0: Before we get started with this episode of American Rabbi Project, a few quick things. First of all, if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to this podcast. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Also, I am officially on the speaking circuit, so to say. If you're interested in having me speak to your group of any size, please shoot me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. And of course, I can do virtual presentations. Finally, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. There's this wonderful sixth sense that most Jews have where regardless of how observant they are or how little they go to services, Jews find a way to make things work for the high holidays. And that's what happened to me when I found myself in Rapid City, South Dakota for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. The first thing I had to do was find the Jews in town. So I went to the place you can always find one, the local comedy club. My buddy, who I was staying with, has a Jewish friend on his improv team, and he graciously pointed me to the only shul in town, a small reform congregation that meets in a modified house and flies out a student rabbi to lead services a few times a year. It was an amazing experience, and I certainly plan to do a South Dakota episode later on. I didn't scoop up any interviews at the time because it was the high holidays and not a time for work. At the service I went to, you could see the sixth sense in play, because there were more travelers than locals. It felt like we were holding services at a crossroads. In the next few days, so many of us would be gone, including myself. But for that moment, we were together, bringing in the new year. I was originally worried I'd miss services because I was in a faraway place. But I realize now that a faraway place is a very Jewish place to be, whether that's the Sinai, South Dakota, or Maine. Episode four, Maine, wrestling and wandering. Before I went on this trip, I talked to a friend who has done a lot of traveling. She said at some point, everybody hits their limit. Going into this trip, I was worried that I'd hit my limit early that after leaving my job to go on a huge journey, I'd end up tapping out within a few weeks. So I promised myself that no matter how early I hit that wall and no matter how miserable I felt, I wouldn't turn back until I made it to the Atlantic Ocean. And it was at Acadia National Park in Maine that I reached salt water. And I was relieved to know that I still wanted to wander. So I went to Bangor to chat with Rabbi Darrell Lerner of Congregation Beth El.
1: My name is Rabbi Dara Lerner. I would say the largest component of my job is the broad universe of teaching, whether that's teaching prayers to people, that's teaching Jewish tradition, teaching history,
0: teaching customs, teaching how to learn. Lerner started by teaching me the history of Judaism in the region. Maine is similar to Utah in the sense that some people question if there are any Jews there the answer to both being yes there's about 16 congregations in the state including a few in Bangor Maine's third largest city the oldest congregations around 150 years old Lerner says back then the port towns of Bangor and Portland attracted plenty of Jewish and non-Jewish businesses because of their potential for growth and the draw of less competition than the Boston area. Also, some Russian and Eastern European Jewish refugees were settled in Maine at the beginning of the 20th century by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society.
1: We don't have a huge Jewish population, but one of the things about Maine versus I meet people from like New York where they talk about how easy it is to be Jewish because there's so many Jews around. Jews in Maine, you have to make an investment, and that means that you get a particularly kind of wonderful, engaged,
0: if occasionally, you know, eclectic Judaism. That initiative was how Beth El was formed. The community was founded by a second wave of Jews who went to northern Maine in the 1970s and 80s. They came for a program where doctors could have student loans forgiven by working for several years in a rural community. Lerner says those who stayed wanted a broader congregation that was more progressive and more welcoming to interfaith families. So they started a reform synagogue. The founding father, Dr. Sidney Block,
1: rheumatologist. And uh, he was one of the first, and then there were five other families that met. They put up a note card in the hospital (laughs) announcing their meeting, and family showed up. And uh, for many years, they ran their own congregation,
0: leading their own services, teaching their own kids. Lerner has been the congregation's rabbi for 14 years. She describes herself as a second-career rabbi. Before taking the Bema, she worked in business management and tech companies.
1: So there's three basic things that drove me to the rabbinate. One I'll call ethical wrestling. I wanted to understand how people made choices um, along ethical frameworks. So I started reading deeply into philosophy, religion, psychology, and that helped drive me back to my own personal roots, which were Jewish. The next was the power of community. I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, joined a synagogue there because it was really a great way to meet people and really started to love the power of being in community. And then finally, the real wild card is very often in the social and political landscape, you would hear people say something, and then they would say, the Bible says such and such. And very often, I was not feeling that very positive about what they had just claimed the Bible said.
0: So Lerner decided to read it herself. She studied with a rabbi, read the commentaries, and used Hebrew so she could absorb Torah in its original form.
1: Because I really wanted to know whether this foundational text, not just of Judaism, but ultimately other religious traditions, in fact said just this universe of negative things. And to my great pleasure and surprise, it actually said things like, feed the poor welcome the stranger. (laughs) That the first instruction for human beings is that we should find ourselves a partner. It is not good for humans to be alone. And so I fell
0: in love with this book and then all of our commentary. Similar to Rabbi Spector in Utah, Lerner says it's an honor to share in people's joy and sorrow through Jewish events, but her main passion for the rabbinate is teaching.
1: We're not the first generation to actually ask questions like, what's the meaning of life? Or how do we deal with people who are different? And generations of Jews, certainly everyone, but generations of Jews have have wrestled with that question and taken ancient stories, stories that we guess are probably at least 3,500 years old, and added to that all the time. And so that we can approach the world with deep history and incredible modernity,
0: This ties into a key tenet of Reform Judaism. The Columbus platform, a founding document of the movement, talks of revelation being an ongoing process, that divine truth is revealed to every generation. This sets up one of the biggest ideological differences between Reform and Orthodox, the concept of seeing Torah as a guiding document as opposed to set-in-stone commandments. There are Reform rabbis uh, who keep strictly kosher homes, who
1: are Shomer Shabbos, who are um, labels that we often associate with orthodoxy. There are also Reformed Jews, uh, Reform rabbis who eat treif and don't keep kosher homes. It's, it's a big tent. And it meant it was a very comfortable place to be able to be live a deep and rich Jewish life that was also
0: a very deep and rich modern life. Modernity is at the core of the movement, which has its roots in the emancipation, a time where European countries started granting more rights to Jews. Today, it's the largest Jewish denomination in the U.S. Lerner says one of the movement's successes is how it reaches out to Jews where they are.
1: So we have prayers in our prayer book now that speak to even people who come to our services who may or may not believe in God, people who embrace fully the notion of being atheist and Jewish. We actually have prayers in our prayer book that that say that out loud. Okay? There have been Jews like that, I think, as long as there are Jews. The brilliance of the reform movement is we say it out loud. We're not afraid to embrace that our communities are people who think broadly and deeply and are committed to Judaism and Jewish lives.
0: Lerner says this inclusion also attracted her to the denomination. The reform movement was the first to ordain female rabbis.
1: And then additionally, um, I'm a lesbian, and the reform movement embraced early the um, possibility of lesbians and gays and now uh, transgender individuals to be clergy and to understand that God and God's wisdom made us in our diversity and that we're all part of the story and that um, with proper, you know, appropriate Jewish education, that clergy should be like Jews, sort of every kind of Jew.
0: Lerner says she personally hasn't faced a lot of outright discrimination in Jewish circles, But she's dealt with more subtle forms of sexism, like comments about how she doesn't, quote, look like a rabbi and not being taken as seriously as her male counterparts.
1: Also, humans are really interesting that I find if I'm the only rabbi around and people need a meaningful rabbi experience, that very often that will, you know, moderate, if you will, the part that I'm a woman. And then when there's other options generally male, again, things readjust and I became, become the other, the woman, whatever. So there's, that's a fascinating phenomenon as well, is that in a moment of crisis, the rabbinic status uh, is fully embraced, and then when there are other options, changes.
0: While Lerner says things aren't perfect, she also believes attitudes are changing. These days, more and more reform and conservative synagogues and even some orthodox institutions have an inclusiveness policy for LGBTQ Jews. Lerner says some of that comes from modern science and sentiments, but some of it also comes from old texts.
1: For example, the Talmud, our foundational text of how do you understand and do Jewish, the predominantly men who wrote that, they were smart enough to understand that humanity came in incredible diversity. They actually understood there were multiple genders or multiple presentations of gender. So 2,000 years ago, they had no problem recognizing it. And then somehow we got into these very tiny boxes again and became unable to sort of think outside of them some of the texts that were understood to be very explicit explicitly against a particular group rereading them as jews do we reread our texts over and over again we start to go oh maybe that actually wasn't the import of that sentence maybe instead of being a prohibition against what we understand as healthy adult homosexual relations it was a critique of cultic practices of our neighbors were engaging in those activities for the purpose of worshiping gods of the Greco-Roman variety as opposed to something else. So the very first thing we learn about human beings, the very first is that the divine figures out it's not good for humans to be alone. If we start with that mindset and then ask the question about what does that mean? Is that an opposite, quote unquote, for everybody? Or is it finding the appropriate partner for everyone? That's going to really change how you read and how you understand some of the texts. Similarly, that can be applied to questions around the role of women in Jewish life. Was the divine actually interested in having women excluded from huge percentages of significant Jewish life? It is certainly not the God that I believe in.
0: For Lerner, this also serves as a call to action. Her social justice work is something she sees as squarely rooted in her Judaism.
1: What Jews are called, we have three different names. One of our names is, we are Israel. As Israel, our text tells us, we are people who wrestle or struggle with God and other human beings. There are challenges in the world, and our job as Jews is to participate in those. That's what we do. When we even when we think maybe God didn't do the right thing. Our title calls us the people who are willing to struggle and wrestle with that and call God to better behavior and call humanity to better behavior. We are Ivry, we're Hebrews. We are people who travel and move and cross over. Jew itself is from Judah, which is from the root for thanks, thankful. So social justice is rooted in all of that. I'm thankful for what I have. I have to occasionally go out there and do the work and being one who wrestles means I have to be called to engage in all of these important questions of our time.
0: Those questions also include how do Jews relate to America? What are the challenges to being Jewish in this country? Lerner says it can be hard working around the dominant culture's calendar, which doesn't always accommodate well with Jewish holidays and events. She acknowledges that more freedom can allow people to move away from a religious lifestyle. But at the same time, the opportunity.
1: You can learn so much. You have access to so much. Those same freedoms allow you to have so much that you can have a better, smarter, bigger Judaism if you choose. You know, that's part of the whole enlightenment and emancipation that led to this country is that we started allowing people to develop into them full selves. We didn't make people stay in the same kind of ghettos and isolations. We didn't keep them away from educational science history, opportunities, and we didn't take things at face value.
0: And she says this access has rarely been paralleled in Jewish history. But despite this modernity and freedom of living in America, Lerner says it's important to remember that Jews also get a lot of rights granted to them from their Judaism.
1: We're supposed to be busy all the time. That's the great American story is that we have opportunity all the time and then also demands on us all the time. The Jewish part of us says... Actually, you have the right and privilege to say no to some of that, and that might actually be good for you. You have a day that's scheduled to be the day that you rest, potentially even boldly tell your boss or your friends or the dominant culture, no, I'm not going to do that thing. I have control over the story of my life. In America, we tend to encourage people to get over and get through things, even something as serious and meaningful as the death of somebody important to us. Judaism offers the radical notion that you have the right and privilege to feel loss and to feel the change that happens in your life when somebody important to you dies. And so we build in not two or three day bereavement leave if you're lucky, but that depending on who the person is and how close they are to you, maybe seven days of stepping out of your regular life for a loss, acknowledging it for a full 30 days of your life that somebody significant. And if it's super close and significant person that for a year and every year you acknowledge the loss. So there's a way in which being Jewish actually improves your status in this American landscape because it gives you another vocabulary for encountering Joyous events, challenging events, loss, good news, bad news. It says, here, here's another way to respond to those. And again, I'm going to emphasize these words that you have the right and privilege to have the full range of your life story acknowledged.
0: It's all part of the scale between being Jewish and being American. Lerner thinks the two are compatible and doesn't need to involve leaning to one or the other. She says it's always been a Jewish tradition to honor the country they reside in. And even the concept of assimilation is not new.
1: If we're strictly looking at some kinds of numbers and if you're looking at is somebody Jewish defined by the fact that they also married somebody Jewish? Yes, there are numerical considerations and some percentage of loss. At the same time, Judaism has always engaged in a certain practice of acculturation. If you were to listen to uh, Yemenite Jews do various prayer and Torah chanting, they will amazingly enough sound like the culture that they're from. And the ones from Germany sound like Germans, and the ones from France sound like France. And this is not a recent phenomenon, this is a historical phenomenon. We often... Borrow the culture around us and blend into the culture around us to a certain degree when oppression lowers to those kinds of levels. We're not talking about the worst of Jewish history, but better moments. So there's
0: always cultural borrowing, cultural sharing, cultural integration. Some of the biggest sharing includes a sharing of love. It's a central focus of Learner's Congregation, which was founded by interfaith families. She's officiated these unions and usually sits down with the couple and talks to them about where Judaism fits into their relationship. Although one thing she is leery about is the concept of raising a child with two faiths.
1: Much of Christianity and much of Judaism have different foundational ideas about human beings. And when we're older, we can juggle those, but I'm not sure little kids have the capacity to deal with foundationally different ideas about human beings. So that's one problem is that when you tell radically different stories, I think that that can be a challenge. The other challenge is that often if parents, I haven't personally experienced this, but my understanding is that often if you raise kids in two, teach in two, and then use the expression, you invite the kids to choose, when kids are little... They don't think they're being asked to choose between two faiths, two histories, two religions, that sometimes they think they're supposed to choose a parent. And that, I'm not
0: sure, is a good thing to encourage kids to do. Still, from a general standpoint, Lerner thinks it's more about focusing on the potential of every couple to contribute to the community as opposed to worrying. What's the old expression that if you only
1: have it a hammer, everything you think everything is a nail. If you assume that there's going to be a problem, you're going to probably find problems. If you start from understanding that these are people looking for community, meeting, uh, meaning, etc., then you have the opportunity to develop really great relationships and to develop Jewish families. Even if not every person is labeled by tradition,
0: Jewish. Because for Lerner, she says at her core, as a spiritual leader and a teacher, the priority is offering something meaningful.
1: There's a uh, author, I can't remember who, I should give credit, but we are famously known as the ever-dying people. We are always commenting on real trauma I'm not dismissing. I'm not dismissing the real trauma that's happened in Jewish history. But there's a way that we talk about our loss to some other something, opportunities outside of the Jewish community, education, interfaith, all of these things. We're always hand wringing over our loss. And we shouldn't pretend it's not real, but we shouldn't act like a, that's our only story. Jews often have to choose between whether we're thinking about um, Amalek and Auschwitz, the dark moments of our story, the bad guy of the Bible, and the deep, dark horrific moments of our history? Or are we Sinai and Torah Jews? Are we Jews who are Jewish because something amazing happened and we have a vision of a better world with a particular story that says humans can actually improve things? Those, those are the deep questions. And if we present Sinai and Torah and meaning, then Judaism will be just fine, in my
0: opinion. Shimon Ravidovich is the author who coined the phrase ever-dying people. And maybe I kind of fell into this trap. Maybe some of the motivations to do this project came from a worry, or at least some uneasiness. But there does seem to be a lot of optimism from the people I talk to, specifically for Rabbi Dara Lerner. She gets that optimism from the ever-living Torah and the ever-changing Jew in the far-off places. American Rabbi Project, Episode 4, Main, Wrestling and Wandering, was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. So if I'm a one-man band, then Derek Pova is the competent roadie and does the web stuff. The logo is designed by Dan Ziffer of Dandelion Digital. I want to thank Jeremy Crohn's, Sarit Rathbone, Dylan Abrams, Beth Vanderstoop, and my parents for the assistance. You can go to rabbiproject.com for more episodes, a blog, and a Jewish term index. Feel free to reach out by sending me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Follow us on Twitter with the handle at rabbiproject and facebook.com slash rabbiproject. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.